0: Hello and welcome to Explain Me. My name is Patty Johnson
1: and I'm William Haida.
0: Today we're here to talk about NFTs, which uh, have been a big topic of discussion as of late. We are going to define them. We are going to uh, talk about all of the various sales surrounding them and uh, all kinds of issues. We have two uh, very exciting guests here today. Uh, William, do you want to introduce our guests?
1: Well, I thought we'd uh, let our guests introduce themselves and what they're working on, but uh, our first guest is uh, Amy Whitaker. Uh, Amy, do you want to introduce yourself to the audience?
2: Yeah, hi, i really glad to be here, Amy Whitaker. I am a writer and researcher. I'm on faculty at New York University in Visual Arts Administration. And I do research on sustainable economic structures for artists some of which involve fractional equity and blockchain.
3: Hi, um, I'm Rina Galcarina. I'm a features editor at gizmodo.com, which is a tech and science website. I'm also a union rep. Um, I edit mostly long form and narrative pieces, everything from conspiracy theories to cryogenics to whatever comes. And I'm really excited to be
0: here. Well, thanks so much for joining us. Um, I think like one of the things we do before we we jump in is uh, we try to do a check in with our guests about uh, how the quarantine um, is is going for them. Uh, so maybe Marina, we can we can start with you. Uh, are you surviving? How's uh, we're like near we're like a year in now. I'm doing okay.
3: I've. Uh integrated into this model of only seeing people on the street or through this little Zoom window. Um, I'm just preoccupied with work and union stuff for a long time. So I'm I'm doing okay. I also take anti-anxiety medication. So that helps. But <laughs> in general, I'm doing I think I'm doing okay. Uh, I don't know how much longer I will be doing okay. But everything's
0: fine. We're good. Um, William, it seems like you're doing a lot of uh, uh, organizing too.
1: Yeah, yeah. Um, Marina, hopefully maybe we can chat a little bit about it later in the podcast. But um, yeah, I've been working with a group of people that have been very quietly and slowly working on putting together the outlines of an arts union for artists and arts workers it is um you know not really a public facing organization yet but it is it is heading in that direction so maybe something in the next 3 or 4 months will be will be out in the world that i can name <laughs> and talk about in more detail
0: and amy how are you doing i mean i don't know
2: anyone who's not having a really hard time the last couple of weeks just it's really tough the anniversary of when the pandemic started and the kind of international space station existence. Um, I feel like my social skills have atrophied, So if I interrupt anyone, it's because I don't talk to human beings that often. Um, but I would say the most joyful thing from the last phase of the pandemic has been family Zoom call with my siblings and my aunt. My aunt is a master storyteller who's become obsessed with television murder mystery movies. And long story short, we've started trying to toy around with writing a murder mystery over zoom and just the character sketches alone are really like making my day. So that's the the best, most positive thing I can add.
0: Well, that's nice. Um, we, we've been doing a few more zoom meetings in my family as well, which is kind of a nice thing. I would say that I'm uh, doing okay, but I've actually started to question like my, I don't know, my, my basic feeling on that. Cause like, I started to think about like um, socialization, like socializing and like how uh, you know, I, it used to be really common. We'd just say, Oh, you want to catch a beer, you know, go get a, a beer or whatever. And I haven't said that or even thought that in a year, but I also thought, is it bad that I don't really miss that? Like I don't even miss <laughs> people anymore. <laughs> like, I've yeah. gotten to some weird stage where like, it's fine to never see anyone.
1: Yeah. I was just thinking about how the kind of early routines of watching shows on Netflix or the things that, you know, people escaped into had become so boring that I'd stopped doing those things. I'm like ready to go to bed at like nine o'clock, you know, I'm like, there's nothing. I, I don't want to watch any more shows. You know, I don't want to talk to anyone on zoom outside of, you know, like, union organizing and work, you know, um, yeah. So I, I feel you on that, but I, 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 I would like to see people, uh, not just on the sidewalk, you know, hopefully the summer might happen. I don't know.
0: Yeah. It seems like the, uh, it seems like we at least have a lot of vaccines, uh, now perhaps the, uh, doling out of them is not happening as, as quickly as we would like, but, uh, but anyway, uh, transitioning to uh, NFTs, which is the short form for non-fungible uh, token, um, I I thought it would be really useful to just talk about what these things are because I don't know, probably a week or two. I I don't even know if I I I didn't ever think about them, um, and I wanted to advise uh, listeners too that we, I guess, about a year and a half ago we did an episode with Kevin McCoy, which was a deep dive into Bitcoin and Monograph, which is kind of a pre- preceder to things like Nifty Gateway, which we will talk about um, once we have the language down. Um, but that definitely is a good primer for what's happening now. Um, Amy, could you uh, give us a sort of working definition of what an NFT is?
2: Yeah, absolutely. Um, So as you say, an NFT is a type of token um, and tokens are generally associated specifically with the Ethereum blockchain. So we can contextualize that and kind of what blockchain is. But Ethereum is a type of blockchain that was started in 2014. And it has a couple of different token structures. One of them is a fungible token. So you can think of it operating a little bit like cash. And then The non-fungible token, the NFT, sometimes called a Nifty or an ERC721 after the code, is um, a type of token that can function like an original. And what makes it really interesting for the arts is that it has some of the same structural characteristics as a work of art in that it can be made to function as an original object, um, even though it's digital.
1: So can we... um just one question about that, right? Like I tend to think of the Nifty as a title to a work that is posted, uh, you know, may exist digitally on the internet, but could potentially be an object in my studio. So is the Nifty separate from the artwork itself?
2: Um, yeah, that's a really good distinction. Um, I because i come from the blockchain um the bitcoin blockchain side i tend to associate the bitcoin blockchain which predated ethereum by about five years with more kind of old-fashioned um registry of title to something so a blockchain registry of provenance where it's a little bit like a Solo wit work of art, where if you have the certificate, you own the work. And if you have the wall drawing, but no certificate, you do not own the work. Um, And Ethereum, I think you could say the same thing, exactly um, what what you're saying, Bill. Um, it, It does function like a certificate because only in rare instances does the actual work of art live on the blockchain. There's a particular project called autoglyphs from larva labs that's a a kind of generative art project that has a token structure and it's small enough because the artwork is just the instructions that make the drawing that it can live on the chain but most of the time the image is is paired there's a pointer from the blockchain to the image if you're fortunate enough to own a cat with a pop tart jumping over a rainbow or similar Is that, does that distinction make sense or?
1: Yeah, that distinction makes sense. I'm, you know, and maybe we'll get into the specifics of how the Nifty works say with Nyan cat, you know when (laughs) when we get there, but, but I think, you know it is important to maybe, you know we wanna know what is the difference then between say the Nifty itself and what is the blockchain, you know, technology. And I I think you've started to get into that with the Ethereum part of this, <laughs> you know, just for our listeners too, what what is the blockchain?
2: So I'll I'll take that one too, and then open it up. Um, so blockchain is essentially a database structure, and the way I think about it is in terms of the story of the research that came before the Bitcoin blockchain. There are two researchers, Stuart Haber and Scott Stornetta, who in the late '80s had a research question, which was, with the advent of personal computing, it is so easy to manipulate a digital file. How will we know what was true about the past? And how will we know without having to trust a central administrator? This is annoyingly hard to do. So they got frustrated and tried to actively prove that it was impossible. And then one day Stornetta was at a friendlies in New Jersey and he had this insight that if they had many different copies of the registry, that were all connected to each other, they could have a system where you could trust the the registry itself without having to trust the central administrator. So a central administrator would be like the Museum of Modern Art, the US government, you know, JP Morgan, um, and here you're trusting the network. And they um, were far enough ahead of their time, Haber and Stornetta, that they didn't successfully commercialize any of it. And actually their work, would have been on US patent the first year of the Satoshi blockchain, but someone forgot to pay a patent maintenance fee. Um, and uh, Satoshi has eight footnotes in the Bitcoin white paper, and three of them are to Haber and Cernetta's work. So it's basically a way of time stamping digital documents, starting with a Genesis block and then adding them in. And they have this kind of chain link fence domino rally structure where they're completely interconnected and you can't change one without having to go back to the beginning and change them all. And this is almost impossible to do because there's so many copies of the ledger. And then people are now incentivized to keep the copies of the ledger by winning cryptocurrencies like Bitcoin, um, which is how cryptocurrencies started to become the tail that wags the dog. Um, The way
0: that I have like described this in the past um this was actually on the previous explain me podcast but now i feel like i need to ask you whether it actually works was that to me it seemed a little like a like in quickbooks when you reconcile the account like once something becomes part of the blockchain and it's been like and the account is reconciled everything like lines up and then it's set in stone and after that point like it can't be manipulated so it sort of works that way
2: yeah exactly exactly it's set in the in the block and then the blocks are chained together as well yeah
0: 100% okay so
1: yeah i mean i think one of the one of the questions we had for both of you um you know is is do studio artists kind of do studio artists need to care about you know Nifty's and the blockchain but I think before we even get to that question, is why is this so important for digital artists? And Marina, years ago, I was in a show that you curated with Kyle Chyka um, uh, that was like the first show of Vine artwork. <laughs> and and Patty, I know I remember in Miami you had a, a booth at one of the art fairs where you were selling thumb drives with with editions of, of GIFs on it. So the idea that you know selling digital artwork is been around before. But suddenly we have a huge amount of language about this being sort of the first time that digital artists could um, sell their work, which isn't true, but that seems to be part of the narrative right now. So, so why is this so important for digital artists? Um, Marina, do you want to? <laughs> sure.
3: Uh, I, I, I think what we tried to focus on our wine show that many years ago is that it was platform specific. And uh, we had the hag with the Brooklyn developers to be able to upload the Vine to someone else's account at the time where you could only record something to your account directly. And that's how we proved that they own the original work because they were just displaying it in their system. Um, That makes me think a lot of the uh, NBA Top Shot, which is, They sell video-based basketball trading cards and they call them moments. And then there's their sport clips, which are notoriously copyrighted and expensive. So people are collecting these and there's a social network type thing built into this marketplace where you can display what you collect as a trophy in that system. So um, if there is a platform that exists that you don't have to build to display your art, that seems like a positive thing, and obviously, this thing has been existing for a while. And, and just these two ideas are somehow running into peril together. Uh, I think in part because of you know the crypto boom, but then also the pandemic and us relying on technology and realizing that it isn't just real but essential. So more people are focusing on this right now. But yeah. in terms of does 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 every digital artist or non digital artist need to be involved in this? Like I think it's a personal choice, and I've heard from, I've talked to a lot of people with very polarizing views on this. Um, I have people who despise the concept of the auction in general, um, and then there's like the true believers who consider this to be a community that depends on each other and something new and super edgy.
0: You know, one of the things that I, I've also been thinking about is like how often this comes up on uh, a social platform that we have not mentioned um, before on this plat uh, on, on explain me, which is clubhouse, which seems to be like 50% conversations about Bitcoin and NFTs and, and uh, other stuff and that to the extent that now when I go into some of these rooms, there are like takeoff rooms that are like, this is an NFT free zone um, where you can only talk about uh, like the specific things, the, the like specific studio things or something like that. Like, why, um, why, why does everybody want to talk about this now?
1: Yeah, and I, I think also, Amy, I mean, I think that question is for you as well, is how, how is the Nifty creating a market for digital art? You know, coming back to the fact that it's a kind of digital title um, that kind of proves ownership.
0: And also, what is Nifty? Like, I feel like we, we haven't even gotten to that. Like... <laughs> that
1: was the first question.
2: <laughs> um, Yeah, so... Let's see. I, let me start with a more kind of general blockchain digital work point, and then try to get into NFTs or NFTs. So my starting point for blockchain was actually a group with um, William. Would you like me to call you William on the podcast? Uh, a group, a group with 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 Bill um, and some other artists that uh, was about what property meant for artists, and I started looking at resale royalties. As a form of property and then by chance right after we made a book together i met someone who was starting a blockchain company and was like wow this is actually a way that you could build a platform where people could manage shares in art or digital art as property so the the person who was starting that company is called sean moss pultz um he's based in taipei and the company is called bitmark so casey reese does some work with them on digital art projects um but when Sean was starting it, if you asked him why he said, he would say um, that he had a kid and that he wanted to be able to give his music collection to his son. And he realized one day that he couldn't do it because he doesn't own his music. He owns licenses to his music. And he's like, there should be a concept of digital ownership. And so I think there's like this sort of like massive iceberg of an idea there, which is that, you know, we live in a, late stage capitalistic platform economy where lots and lots of data is owned by companies like Facebook, um, you know, the, the dependence we have on these companies, the way that Spotify doesn't sell me an album, but a right to listen to an album. um, We, we don't have property. And for artists, I think this is really important because, you know, ownership obviously is a complicated concept where it starts to sound neoliberal and extractive through certain lenses, but also ownership to me is very closely related to artistic autonomy, authorship, choice, even to give something away, often you have to own it first. And I I don't mean in that to um, overlook uh, problematic colonial histories of, of ownership, you know, having this conversation on unceded Lenape territory um, and everything else. Um, But I I think what interests me about blockchain idealistically is the potential for collective and shared ownership and for artists to have larger choice sets about participating in systems that could support artists individually and artists collectively. Um, So um, that's how I, think about it um, is, is as a, a structure that it creates a kind of membrane of ownership around a digital image. And that can be used in a number of different ways. It can very clearly be speculated on and pontificated about. Um, it can also be collected. I'm thinking of like the current museum that Kalani Nicole and some other people are involved in where people pool resources and buy digital work and they have one original copy of it, and then enough artist proofs that each person in the syndicate gets to live with a copy. Um, I I think they're kind of interesting structures that could come about from it. I absolutely don't think artists need to participate in it, but for me, it's a little like the market where some knowledge um, also creates um, critical scrutiny and confidence in when to say no or an ability to develop alternate structures.
1: Yeah, I think part of this is, you know, this technology's been around, um, there's been other efforts and the things that you're describing sound like the good side of it. And I just want to talk about the bad side of it for a second because <laughs> I think part of the attention that is being thrown on this is the fact that people's work just sold for $6.6 million as a private sale through Christie's and uh, the Nyan cap gift sold for something like $580,000. And so this idea of you know artists getting paid for their work, um, it slingshotted sort of past any <clears throat> point of reasonable payday, like a paycheck <laughs> or a wage, to um, you know blue chip art status. You know, just like from zero to a hundred. And as soon as you hear what a Nifty is, and you go to say Nifty Gateway. Um, When I went to Nifty Gateway, I looked at which artists were on the platform. I saw that Kenny Scharf was on the platform and that Kenny Scharf had released a JPEG of what appears to be a sketchbook drawing. And it was selling for $999 and then immediately being resold for as much as like $17,000. So the speculative side of things also, I just want to say, looks like somebody just put a brick on the gas pedal And that card is shot out and like, people are like, (laughs) there's a phenomenal amount of money attached to what's going on right now. And I don't know how much of it is sort of real and just trades, you know, in the cryptocurrency and it's not real until someone cashes it out into like us dollars or euros or something. But that for me has been the, let me just say the context for it. And, um, as soon as I saw that this was sort of trending on Twitter, you know, of course, like Kalani Nicole is, engaged in fierce battle right? <laughs> you know around like the other possibilities for this technology okay. so I, I you know and i think marina that was something that um i wanted to to hear from you too as well as just that you know how this platform this technology has been rolled out you know and um because how you're sort of <laughs> receiving it years after you know the kind of vine show and uh, being engaged with digital work early on
3: well, well, let's be specific when we sold the vines, we sold Angela Washko's wine for two hundred dollars uh the last LeBron moment on the NBA platform that I mentioned was sold for two hundred thousand uh like the stakes are a lot bigger um here we were we were trying to make commentary as well not just the insane amount of money that we charged for the art uh but I th- I I would say there is such a concentration of wealth right now that it needs to be spent on something and why not cultural capital? And people, I cannot explain, I cannot, I cannot explain. I like one, I like one where there's the Shrek uh, in the paint me like one of your French girls pose next to the villagers. Like, I think that one's cool. The, the rest confuse me. So it's, it's, it's hard for me to put a value on it. I hate that word, but put a value on it as a personal taste, but it seems like, oh, these are the kind of references that people who deal with cryptocurrency like, this is, this is their thing. This is their guy. He's been doing this for many years. One work every day. They love it. Um,
1: yeah, so That's part give,
3: of it, I think. It mm-hmm. is the cultural fit.
1: Yeah, and I think that's, that's part of the conversation we can have as well as the kinds of art that are being bought and sold right now in the digital economy, which I think it was Greg Bornstein on NY, uh, who's on Twitter, described it as Blender tutorial art. But I, you know, I'm not necessarily interested in the the value judgment, uh, you know, of what this kind of new moneyed cryptocurrency set is interested in buying. I, I do think it is worth sort of talking about. Um, but I was also curious for our listeners who, who maybe are just hearing about Beeple's, can you describe that? Like, why did you zoom in on that one piece? Because um, there's like 5,000, right? Or like...
3: Well, I, l- let me pull up the latest Esquire article about people, and I'll describe <laughs> them. There is a very thin Biden and a not thin Trump naked boxing with blood all over the floor um there is i believe an, i believe elon musk on the robot sheet um uh Mm -hmm. kanye West's head was a robot not attached to his body being worked on like i mean it's 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 funny it has political commentary on it um i can't I, i i can't I can't explain the value of a lot of auctions. I'm not, uh, <laughs> it's kind of an Ouija board situation with these things I've been saying, but um, I can see the cultural appeal in it. Yeah. I, uh, yeah, I was
1: going to say- uh, well, I was just going to say that I think I've described people's on Twitter as a kind of liberal John McNaughton, you know, this kind of... I've heard this, exactly yeah, that. Yeah, the style is sort of populist. The content is not um, not pro-Trump, let's say. It's not conservative, but there is a kind of Venn diagram overlap there, of the figurative aesthetic of it. That's
0: I mean, yes and, yes and no. I mean, I think some of the collage works feel like they very much come out of a collage tradition that has existed for some time on the internet and like that they're part of that like cliff evans and tinneth kenneth tin can uh hung like the collage works have that kind of um history attached to them so i don't think those but they seem very separate to me they were early
1: right because this represents uh how many years of work, first 5,000 days, I think the project's called. So, you know, the, the aesthetic has changed as the audience has changed as well. So now you get more politically oriented work, Mike Pence, you know, hovering over the White House or something, um,
0: well, so but I, I, I do think, think like, the work has I, changed. But I do think that also, though, that that work that I'm referencing, Kenneth Tin Kin Hung, it, for example, like all the work that he did, um, they were these like web pages that were like just collage with many, many um, images uh, were la- they were largely political. Um, they were kind of like loud and bombastic. Even the, even this, like, I think you could, you could technically, I don't know whether it's correct, but I, I think you, you might make a a kind of lineage from like that collage to a kind of more um like to the singular figures but they're still just as kind of outrageous as the uh, as the other as the or the original collages were because it seems like part of the aesthetic is to just sort of be as outrageous and as loud as the internet is and that's
1: like it's got garbage pale kids in it, it's got you know Mad Magazine in it. You know, I'm not, <laughs> it's slow, it's, I mean,
3: yeah, but, it's, it's but it's not particularly symbolic. There's an anecdote in the New York Times profile about how in his studio he has a, a screen that plays MSNBC and a screen that plays Fox at the same time on mute, uh, and that just says the relationship of the inspiration of the context that is not necessarily not necessarily deep political analysis which it doesn't have to be nothing nothing has to be deep analysis in art it could just be cool (laughs) there's obviously a lot of people think a a lot of people think that apparently I, i wouldn't say it's you know something that is drawn on a truck i think it's although that can also be good, I guess, but it's...
1: (laughs) So uh, one thing that that is unique about Beeple's work and this work that we're kind of discussing is that it was offered for sale on Christie's and it is going through, it's a private sale, it's not a public auction, Um, but I'm kind of, for our viewers, you know, for the the audience listening to this podcast, where can people find these Nifties? What are some of the platforms? And you know, uh, maybe Amy, you can talk us a little bit through the distinction between the token and the platforms or markets that are people can trade these on.
0: Can I just interrupt for one brief second because we are getting to the platforms um, and say that I just wanted to like the Nifty um, the Nifty acronym. I. I think this is a result of having like literally not talking to anyone ever. Like I've only ever used the NFT and Nifty, um, I guess it's also what uh, what we call the um, non-fungible uh, tokens. But I had been thinking about Nifty as, as related to uh, a specific platform that I think Amy will be talking about. So these things do get a little confusing, at least for me. My apologies to the reader, to the listeners. No, no, they get confusing for me too. And I'm not sure if it's confusion
2: or selective interest and lack of interest. Like I love The Price is Right. I watched The Price is Right every day when I was a kid and I'm not similarly interested in how people price art. I'm extremely interested in how artists use NFTs to distribute percentages of their proceeds. Like um, what Sarah Levy's doing at Bitforms. Where 35% of the sales of her work goes to the gallery but of that is divided into five shares or one is the gallery and the others are for staff like that is super fascinating um but as to whether a, a work sells for five and a half million dollars or one and a half million dollars like i'm i'm comically bad um it's the opposite of the problem of the mother from arrested development who's like what is a banana ten dollars Um, But it's just, I think the structure is much more interesting than the price, because if you're being honest, the price isn't based on anything. Um, I mean, the Beeple example actually interests me because it has labor in it. It's a little different from uh, the French collective Obvious that sold the AI generated work um, a couple of years ago, where they were using an algorithm that was designed by someone else to source images that came from many, many, many different places. And here, I think it's kind of interesting that the artist you know, made drawings for 5,000 days. Um, I'm not sure that's so interesting. So I, it's, a, it's probably a little unsatisfying because it makes me sound like I'm just sort of optimistically seeking the bright spots of it. But um, yeah, the, I mean, just to Bill's earlier point, uh, it, there's a lot of kind of crass speculation masquerading as cool with a capital C. And it tends to come about through these kind of performative stories of of false histories of of, um, I discovered this like five minutes ago, but other people worked really hard to make it happen five years ago. Um, I'd just like to shout out Kevin McCoy um, and others in that category. Um, So it's this sort of like, look at me, I discovered it. And then there's also this um, knowingly presented avant-garde story. Like this is the next avant-garde. And I'm just not sure if that's really true. I'm not sure that there's been an avant-garde where someone knew what it was at the time. I don't know if that means that there's never an avant-garde again. Um, But to me, what's really interesting about that is that it's it's a huge, I don't wanna say threat, but it's a huge potential change agent to the entire taste-making structure of the art world because you've got people on Clubhouse we're like, who is this guy, Fred, and why is he talking right now? And they're like, oh, Fred is the co-founder of Coinbase, who I just learned recently uh, from a reputable source I have not double checked is going public for like $77 billion. And then they're like, hey, maybe Virgil wants to say something. And I'm like, oh, that's Virgil Abloh, okay. (laughs) Um, So there's this sort of like um, circulation of visual images that bridge, in some ways, over from Hollywood or design or fashion, and in other ways, come from this like um, sort of like tech programmer kind of vibe. Um, and I, I think, in some ways, it masquerades as a story of democratizing access to art, and in other ways, it's incredibly exclusionary. And the regular art world is also incredibly exclusionary, but in entirely different ways that I think people have started to really examine and try to work on, like including the the work you're doing on unionization bill. So I, I guess that gives it the structure of what is technically a disruptive technology where it's something that's kind of less good. And I don't mean that in a pejorative way, but it's like a Walkman and not a home stereo system to kind of come in and disrupt the entire apparatus of galleries and museums, hypothetically, because it's an entirely separate group of people, except for Kenny Schachter.
3: Well, I, I agree with that, and I also wanted to add to the origin stories of the, the artists. Like, people had, what, like, two million Instagram followers, but they are already, a lot of them are influencers and have followers, and for, you know, places that allow artists to put their work on auction, like, let's, I will can use the foundation as an example of like, there are, you know, artists on there who don't necessarily have gallery representation, but that's an opportunity for them to, I guess, make money for the first time. Uh, but th- because they have already other kinds of following online and they're monetizing that. And like you said, with that comes its own bias of who has access to that previous base of potential collector base
1: um marina are you talking post- about foundations what uh, that yeah. website and it, that is lindsey howard one of the co-founders of that platform Market. i'm sure
3: if she's a co-founder i know that she's involved in it and okay. works with the artists there
1: so i think one thing that's important for listeners to understand is that um different markets and different platforms offer things that are not necessarily contained in the NFT token itself. So resale royalties are not embedded in the ECW57, whatever it is, right? That standard is the title really. And to grant resale rights of say 10% to the artist um, is something that is added to that on the platform. So I believe foundation is offering a resale sort of structure on their platform. But as I think Felix Salmon pointed out on Twitter, that say an owner, once they have their title and they own the piece, they could take it to another platform that doesn't have resale royalties and sell it. Um, and so that's, you know, I think what's what I'm really interested in, and in this, I think overlaps with Amy's interest is that we're setting new standards at this point where resale royalties, which are not granted to artists in the U.S. under federal law, um, could be established and make it sort of common. And that could translate back to traditional uh, visual arts, uh, for studio artists. Um, and so I just think it's important for people to understand that there are these real differences between the platforms that they're choosing to exhibit Nifty's on. And some have maybe more slightly socially conscious <laughs> missions, um, or are thinking about representation. I can't say that's necessarily true because like the top 100 selling Nifty artists are like white men.
0: So one of the platforms is Nifty Gateway. What are, like, what makes them different from, like, foundation? Just to summarize,
1: or? The, the only thing I, I know about Nifty Gateway is that I think it's owned by the Winklevoss twins of Facebook, you know, social right. network fame and early Bitcoin investors.
2: Yeah, I it's um, I, it sounds, I am exactly the same. And I. I thought it was founded by the Winklevoss twins. And then someone told me that it was founded by a different set of twins named Duncan and Griffin Cockfoster, who then sold it to the Winklevoss.
1: Right, brothers. they bought it, they didn't.
2: Yeah. And they I, I have a soft spot for the name Cockfoster because there's a very, very funny piece of correspondence from the Tate Modern Planning Files in which the Tate wanted to rename the tube station bankside transport for London told them that that was too suggestive and might be confused. And um, Nicholas wrote to wrote this like absolutely pitch perfect letter that was like, and are there not other um, stations like cockfosters and the cut, you know, anyway, so I, I have a positive association with the name, but um, I think a lot of these things are fancy stores. Um, and some of them are neutral fancy stores. And some of them are fancy stores where I think Um, A bit like when you meet a person, if their arrogance is greater proportionally to their kind of like substance, it's a bit off-putting. And there's some things where the sort of coolness factor is much larger than the substance of it. And then there are others where I think they're quite neutral, but what they're doing is selling art alongside um, collectible sneakers or images that um, do not self-define as art. Um, and so I think there's actually like a potential that um, the way art is sold or understood might kind of bleed into popular culture around the edges. Um, so yeah, some of the other platforms, I'm just thinking of what we should cover. Um, Super- Zora is pretty interesting. Yeah,
3: go ahead. Zora is interesting in a sense that it's, that, it's, that it's, I think that it's not auction based, but it the price goes up in value as more people are buying your piece. Um, so it's not an auction model. I think that's the biggest difference with them. But I don't know, which which other ones do you know, Amy? I, I so many. Say,
2: there, I know there's so many. And then uh, I was going to say Super Rare has an interesting resale royalty structure. So when something's sold in the primary market, the, um, there's a split, like as if a gallery artist split, but I, I wanna say it's 85-15, but I'm not sure about that. But then if something resells, a substantial percentage goes to the the artist and to their credit, they've been doing some work where they share data, like they share data with me and they share data with a couple of other researchers who've been part of um, Data, the collaborative drawing blockchain platforms, invisible economy working group. So that to me feels sort of substantively related to the art itself, as opposed to just like a store for images. Um, and the reason I say that about the store for images is not to, like, take take my ignorance and turn it into a pejorative comment, because I'm, like everyone else, still learning about all of these. It's more to say that, like, it's it's not that interesting in the sense that it's a little bit anxiety-provoking to watch people just, like, sweep a bunch of stuff, hoard it, and then list it, optimistically hoping someone will buy it, which is what a lot of them look like, where you'll you'll go on OpenSea and you'll see Autoglyphs and you'll realize that the same party is selling like a huge percentage of them. Like they just land grabbed the addition. And so I'm just not sure how how interesting that kind of speculation is, whether they're successful or not.
1: Yeah, it's very clear we're in the kind of gold rush period where if you were an early adopter of a cryptocurrency, you may have a whole lot of wealth to spend. If you were uh, an early participant on these platforms, you're getting, um, you know, your work is selling, you know, to some degree you're being traded on these things. Um, and in that I think for me is, is part of the conversation, this kind of public conversation around this that got Patty and I to wanna do a podcast on the subject. Um, I don't know if it's time to bring up Kenny Schachter, but I think, you know, I I saw that Legacy Russell on on Twitter has a Twitter thread about some of the problematic structure of this, Um, you know, and I'll just read maybe two of the tweets, but she says, this NFT conversation feels to me like a violent rebrand slash next wave of the toxic dude net art slash digital art community. Why is no one talking about the fact that the democratic future of art, quote unquote, here has a specific face and gender and target art and tech audience is it just me? And I think, you know, and then she says, uh, they're like, we all need to do a better job, but then housing their knowledge on clubhouse, the other site that has grown in popularity, which is an invite only app that can only be accessed by by those who have an internet access. There's no dial in option, you know, and, and it only works on the iPhone. Um, and so she just starts to point to some of, um, the problems that are sort of being addressed. And let's say they're legacy behaviors that are coming from that exist in the art world. And Amy, you're absolutely right, the art world is is reckon, reckoning with these, maybe not in ways that we're all happy with, but they're being acknowledged. And right now it's it's not. And so when when I thought of what is the face of this kind of um the art world's interface with all of this—it is—it's Kenny Schachter. He literally just posted a photo of himself today with like nifty brands and logos stamped on his face, and there's something self-effacing and some humor to that. But at the same time, he made two hundred and like twenty thousand dollars selling still shots of his phone and some, you know, questionable net art. But I think that's, that, that's... yeah,
0: that's what he said anyway. Mm-hmm. But it looks that way on the on the shop too.
1: Yeah. Not to totally kill the conversation. <laughs> no, no, but I,
2: I think that um I think the critique is so well made. The um, you know, it's people on iPhones. You can't dial in. It's this kind of um, white male net art redux. I, I feel that. I really do. Um, I, I, and Kenny Schachter. I, I'm so blown away by him as a pro stylist. I sometimes like it takes me a little while to, like, um have, I, I'm i I'm so delighted reading his essays um, that I, it takes me a minute to kind of like do what you're doing, which is to engage critically with the image work and how that's circulating. And also I was researching him for a separate project on um, Inigo Philbrick, and I feel like he probably lost a lot of money on that. And so there's something kind of beguiling about his radical honesty about both of these things. And so I would almost say he's kind of performatively associated with the market, except um, it's like an exoskeleton of money, you know, where Jeff Koons is someone where it's like he, the, this, the shell is art and the inside is money. Kenny is sort of like like talking about money externally in a way I find kind of interesting. Yeah.
1: I think so. I mean, you know, you could describe Kenny as like the radioactive element you pump into somebody's body when you want to take an image of the, how it's circulating <laughs> through the body, but I, I still, he's a little bit radioactive for me um, yeah. because he's, you know, it's part parody, but he's reflecting real values and attitudes and beliefs that kind of sum up the kind of speculative nature of, of what I see sort of happening in you know, I think the good things that are in play um, and possibly transformative and um, interesting, like what Sarah Ludi's doing with her, you know, desire to kind of change the relationship uh, with the gallery. Um, I feel like right now that stuff is just buried under the kind of hype machine, you know, and the twin desires of like getting into the clubhouse room where part of clubhouse is a is the ability to be seen being seen, you mm-hmm. know? like Kenny Schachter posted a long scroll of all, look at all the people who are in my clubhouse room looking at me.
0: (laughs) I mean, he also then posted like a little video of him deleting the clubhouse app because I guess he got, uh, decided he didn't like it. I mean, I think that just to give um, listeners a little bit of of description of like one of the pieces he has on um, the platform Nifty Gateway He has this screenshot of a phone that says scam likely. um, And then it says like $500. And then there's like, you know, a certain number of additions, uh, like hundreds of additions um, attached to that, which to me, when I looked at that, I was like, well, that is the power of like, I guess, being part of a wealthy network. I mean, it's kind of a clever it's kind of a clever statement, but if I were to make my own account and put that up there, like I can guarantee you that <laughs> it would not be that kind of activity. But, you know, I mean, if he makes like, I don't know, like sixty, seventy thousand $70,000 on an addition, like it's still like, he's so wealthy. It's like a stick of chewing gum for him. I like, I, sometimes I wonder like, like what this means. Cause it seems very difficult at that level. Like I just, I, I can't wrap my head around what money means to people who have that much wealth already. I, you know, I just don't, I, I don't even know like how you, how you work with it.
1: Have you seen the movie, I, I care a lot that just came out on Netflix? There's a, there's a scene in the movie, if you watch it, I will try not to give you any spoilers, but the main character says she wants enough money to be able to use it like a bludgeon, like a weapon, like the ruling class. And it is, you know, you'll understand it in the context of the film if you watch it, but that's what I think about um, that kind of money you're talking about, Patty.
0: Yeah, that sounds that sounds about right. You don't
3: get um, rich by not continuously making money at every opportunity. <laughs> I'm sure that adds a little because why not?
1: And you know, I think one of the things that's also worth maybe unpacking a little bit is um, you know, in this kind of talk about democratizing the art world, um, there are um, it's creating a new opportunity right for artists that have not been able to sort of access traditional markets. But at the same time, even on the foundation's platform, um, artists can apply to become creators, meaning to be able to make nifty drops or mint artworks on the website. And so there is a, a layer of selectivity that's going into this. Not not anyone can just show up and say, I, I'm a creator um, like me. <laughs> I, I went onto Nifty Gateway and to see what their process was like, I applied to become also a creator on that site. You have to fill out eight questions, provide a video of you talking about your work, state your short-term and long-term goals. And um, I've not heard back from them, you know, and I, I'm not exactly sure what I would drop onto their website. I think Kevin McCoy calls it like DGen memes where you're just making fun of the platforms and the technology. I'm like, oh, my whole entire art practice, um, you know. <laughs> But, you know, the, the, the point is that there's going to be a lot of people who are like, I want to make Nifty's and they might not be able to use these platforms to do that. So I, I'm also curious if there are other platforms where I could just go and mint my own Nifty and maybe it's on an island, you know, like my website, <laughs> with no market built into it. But is that I mean,
3: possible? I mean, what is the deviant art of NFT marketplace?
1: That is um. a perfect question.
3: I don't know. It's a really good question. I don't Where know the,
1: the answer. Wild what
2: you, West? Yeah, what do you think? <laughs> well, actually, you know, um, like this cruel. is more blockchain than um, more Bitcoin than um, Ethereum. But um, so, Casey Reese, the art artist who's at UCLA and was one of the developers of Processing, the computer language, works with the same company I do, um, Bitmark, and they're starting an artist to artist exchange called Feral File. And I feel like that is like much more like anybody can get get in. I mean, maybe there's still this kind of clubbiness to like who knows who, but I feel like um, my understanding is that processing also democratized um, who participated in coding because like, for example, women especially felt more comfortable um, joining because there was something about the community that was a little bit less misogynistic than some coding communities had been um that I would that's one to watch it's a really good question I don't I don't know the answer Mina, do you
3: I'm not familiar I was um theorizing I'm not sure if only this were a radio call-in show I could may I phone a friend
2: (laughs) um but you know I the thing I keep thinking about is um what it's been like for all of us to watch the journalists try to catch up to the change in the structure of the news cycle, even beyond the arts and NFTs with the change in the US presidency and going from this like, kind of like sugar high, like, oh my God, someone said something crazy, that what a spectacle, I feel like I have to cover it or I don't have to do difficult, subtle research. I can just put this kind of crazy thing someone said at the top of the newspaper and of course, processing the spectacle is a really important part of our responsibility for understanding what's happening in our field. But I do wonder like what it looks like to hold space for something like the work Sarah Lutie is doing. And I wonder if it goes back to the organizing that Bill and Marina are working on. Like if you see ways that that might scale into something um, bigger.
1: Yeah, I mean, I can speak to that really quickly. Um, and I. I mean, Amy, I don't know um, how much I can talk about this, but you know, we have a mutual friend who's working on a blockchain-based resale um, platform that would manage titles for all sorts of artists, not just digital artists. And the one thing that I'm not gonna say any names here, but one of the things that's interesting about this project is it has the ability to take a small percentage of the money and send it off to something that would be more distributive that would take some of the profit that's generated and all of the speculative activity <laughs> that tends to not benefit the creators but also not just individual artists it would also benefit the broader arts community and so any project that is coming um, up in these platforms that has something like that that's what i'm i'm looking for you know i'm looking for things that are redistributed that are going to take mm. skim off all of this market activity because that's pretty much it's all driven by that right now and get that out of the big pool of money that just tends to concentrate and sit with owners so um you know and i think as artists start organizing whether you're a traditional artist or a digital artist that that's a false dichotomy that shouldn't uh, be involved in these conversations about um, redistribution of of wealth you know
3: so kalani nicole is actually working on a very interesting project to me and in terms of uh I think she's starting an exhibition and she wants to scale it up to a gallery but uh if one work from a group exhibition sells that all the other artists get a cut sort of like a profit sharing model of selling work from a group and I just find that very interesting um yeah. I don't know how NFTs would even play into that or if she has an interest <laughs> but uh I I I love that idea and it's also sort of like a little bit Reminds me of what Sarah Lee is doing as well.
1: Oh, it's so funny! I just spoke at uh, Amy's Art and Money class that she teaches. In one of the projects that I did, that was part satire and part commentary on all of this, had a project where artists shared in any of the proceeds of any of the sales of a particular product line. <laughs> um, so I, you know, I think that's you know another really interesting area and possibility that you can then actually make happen with this technology, right? Because there's mm-hmm. lots of different ways to structure um ownership and, and how sales are done. And so um there is there is so much sort of potential in this. Yeah. You know. Or
2: like um, recreating the artist pension trust without physical artworks.
1: Mm. And if whatever problems sank that thing. I mean that yeah. one. Yeah, yeah. Um,
2: no, I I was um reading once about how People who are in the finals of poker tournaments in Las Vegas are usually staked in each other's hands because it's too um, risky. If there are four people and there's a million dollar pot, say the winner gets $700,000 and each other person gets 100. And I think not only does that make sense in terms of the arts, because sometimes someone's doing something that's really high quality that doesn't happen to be financial it's not. It's not legible in markets. And I I want to credit a former grad student of mine, um, Camila Nickel, who was writing about market elusive art and started talking about, like, when you look at a gallery roster, sometimes there's one person who's making completely unsaleable art. And I'm going to say something cynical, but like they basically serve a marketing function. So the gallery overall is like, no, 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 it's not just commercial here. It's, look, we have this non-saleable art. But then that person, you know, has a hard time supporting their practice and then other people get the benefit
1: just a question did, did magnus retch rip off your graduate student because in magnus's formulation of like his book on managing art galleries he describes it as like the poor dog you know or something like oh, yeah. there's the cash cow and then there's the artist who literally you know is only there to kind of bring um, some kind of critical credibility to the gallery but make loses money essentially um
2: in in fairness i think magnus's book came out before this project, I um, mean Magnus has also spoken in my class. He's like um, Magnus is a great and,
1: guy. I yeah, yeah and that he's that like he's is.
2: a he's an unapologetically <laughs> bombastic speaker. If you have a quiet class, bring Magnus in, and everyone will like start start talking because he he just like lays down the gauntlet so much. But yeah, very similar. This sort of I think a lot of it's about looking at things as portfolios um, and recognizing. Um, the connections or tensions between like economic life and investment life. You know, it's like artists and studios have costs and need to pay for life. To me, that's largely economic, but then sometimes the work that's produced in those circumstances enters investment markets and people speculate on it. I mean, it's entirely possible that someone paid five and a half million dollars for a work that actually won't, resell for anything, right? They could have just transferred money sort of like every once in a while there's a kind of Silicon Valley person where the company crashes and burns but they make a ton of money anyway. Um, So, you know, who's to say maybe these will be like the bougueros in the museum basement in 50 years. Um, But I I do think the structural stuff is the most interesting. And I, I also think that because it's a form of artists holding power Collectively, I think it's really hard for artists to hold power individually unless they're like, you know, Jasper Johns or something. But I think it's definitely possible for artists to hold power collectively. But the question is how to engage with markets in a way that's um, not uh, like politically or ethically unacceptable. And like, that's a real question
1: yeah, and maybe we should talk a little bit about the carbon footprint of Bitcoin and the networks, because there's so much, yes, um, I would say hyperbole to some degree, but also some realness like the f- carbon footprint or the the energy consumption used by uh, updating, I don't know if it's just niftys or the blockchain in general is something like it consumes as much energy as Argentina. Um, and that you know, when I was talking with Kevin McCoy about this, one of the links he sent me was to an article on oil man magazine and i'm like how why am i going to oil man magazine for blockchain info and it's basically <laughs> that natural gas producers instead of venting um unused gas into the atmosphere they could be burning that s- you using that energy to power the kind of bitcoin um, processing not just mining coins but also updating the ledger because it, it's going to be gigantic and at some point if there's unrestrained growth. I was joking that we're just gonna have to build a Dyson sphere around the sun to power, you know, reconciling the, the blockchain. So I don't know if you, if anyone has any more input or thoughts on this, because it, it is a legitimate question that a lot of people are asking about. Something
3: it. everyone's talking about, not, not necessarily want to do something about, because it's not necessarily possible right now, instead of just like, stop doing what you're doing which isn't going to happen i know that ethereum is changing their model uh i'm um maybe amy can explain that better you know i
2: actually um i think i can say this uh but i'm not sure there's a really kind of smart thinker about this who's writing a piece that i think is maybe coming out in a publication that we all read who I was talking to about it. And I wanna credit her, I guess, anonymously for getting me thinking about it. But um, Rena, this kind of proof of work versus proof of stake decision. So proof of work is the way um, Bitcoin and Ethereum are kind of managed where um, basically they're a bunch of high level computer servers or computers and people use them to solve cryptographic puzzles solving for the nonce so you basically have to get something to line up to like all zeros and ones in the right way and this takes a ton of computing power so you're racing on computer computer power or proof of work Um, but it's also probabilistic Um, but basically the bigger you are the better a chance you have so this is not only massively energy consuming, but kind of unfair. You have some concentration, you have a lot of re-centralization within um, blockchain where like someone will buy up like a server farm to, uh, and that, that could also be like a cooperative structure where all of us have computers and we pool our resources, kind of like what we were just talking about with Kalani's project, but it's usually like one person who's a big corporate actor. So there's this shift to proof of stake and proof of stake um, has it has less sort of I guess you would say asymptotic um, like massively escalating energy use. It's a little more linear, but it kind of um, gives me pause because my understanding is that proof of stake is is based on having money that you can put up at the outset. So you you have proof of stake that you have this percentage of X cryptocurrency, and therefore you're able to kind of jump in and. And that to me replicates all of these sort of structural problems yeah, to, of, to, yeah go. To go. echo
1: that really quickly, uh, in a conversation I was having with someone, they brought up the concept of a gas tax um, yep. to even mint a nifty, somebody might think it's digital art, it's free. It's You know, it can cost as much as $200 just to um, get yourself, get your work minted, right? Yeah. And so, um, that's another kind of like maybe low barrier, but it's a lot of money, you know, for yeah. for a lot of artists, $200 is not coming out of nowhere. So if that starts privileging people, early adopters or yeah. people with money, you know, it's gonna it's gonna reproduce the same structural problems that we've been talking yeah. about for a long time.
3: Completely, <laughs> I mean, and it, yeah. I mean, uh, I, I had this explained to me too, but like the foundation does ask the artists to pay their own knitting gas fees. Like, so all those artists did have to put up money in order to be part of the sales. So
2: I I think of these things in a really broad context, and maybe this is not useful, but I think of it in terms of uh, campaign finance reform and private placement law. So like we have this superstructure uh, private placement law that requires you to be an accredited investor to invest in a private company. And it basically stops anyone who's not already rich from taking a high risk position to make a lot of money. I mean, you could never invest in whatever is the next Facebook, if that's of interest to you, unless you have over a million dollars in net worth outside the value of your primary residence, uh, a couple other things. So there's that. And then there's this kind of like, if we're like for me, the utopia is that blockchain is a democratizing technology and it allows people a citizen like autonomy and an ability to band together with other people. And these systems where you need, where voice and money are conflated, like it's a Citizens United equivalent of a tech world um, are are not good. They're not healthy governance structures. And so I don't know what the right Workaround is, but it doesn't feel like having a bunch of money at the outset is the right solution. And for me, and I, I genuinely don't mean this as a cop out, like, oh, people are working on it. Um, but I do really feel like the environmental impact of uh, blockchain is such a large systems problem that some people who understand cryptography far, far better than I do, like the Stuart Havers of the world, I think these questions are also connected to things like private key management, where if someone has a lot of money or other assets on the blockchain, if they lose their private keys, they lose everything. So I think that there are some sort of like massive kind of redesign questions. And you know, frustratingly, if blockchain is an art project, like I don't know how to paint, like I'm not a I'm not a cryptographer or a programmer. So I think that opens up these questions where you know, probably a lot of people who are on Clubhouse are not actually programmers and they have these positions of power that come from a kind of dominant Silicon Valley cultural frame. Um, but but I'd be really curious to hear what the kind of scientists are trying to figure out and for there to be like a collaborative conversation with like the Haber and Stornettas of the world. I'm not trying to put them on a pedestal, but I think they're sort of remarkable. Like um, Stornetta... Uh, because they were so far ahead of their time he became a high school math teacher and he taught the worst performing uh, freshmen and the best performing seniors and like I've seen his teacher literature on that teachers for teachers website like he was really like a devoted teacher and Haber is um, like just very very funny and Um, I asked, I I hope he doesn't mind my saying this on a podcast. I was like, oh, how'd you meet your wife? And he's like, Oh, just two struggling mimes in Paris. And you're like, and you're you're like, oh, he is wearing mime shoes. That's amazing. Like he's anyway, he like. I don't know, they're, they're human beings is what I'm trying to say. And they're like very idiosyncratic human beings who like love science. I've never been so schooled editorially as I have by Haber. I was like, oh, he's like wiping the floor with me right now and my lack of understanding of crypto, but I sort of love it. And I feel like if there were a way to build a bridge from that to artists, not via this kind of VC platform economy, that would be really exciting.
1: Yeah, I think one of the things that is a little bit worrying is that as people get invested in blockchain in different ways, whether you're hitching art to it and as a distribution platform, it creates another layer of people who then want to see that currency succeed in some way because they're invested in it. But that's the same way that I'm worried about um, the oil and gas industry getting connected to it, you know, and saying, "Okay, there's electric cars coming and we still have all this unburned carbon. Um, And here's a new customer. You know, blockchain, and that—that that to me is one of the sort of troubling aspects of that. And just thinking about how the energy energy industry has thrown so much money at policy to prevent <laughs> um, fighting, cli- you know, climate change. So uh, to call it anti-science um, probably wouldn't be wrong. You know, I mean, because they have just their their interests are antithetical to um, a lot of scientists. So. Uh, yeah, I you know, I guess this is where I get a little bit um cynical or worried about, you know, the hype and the way that um we're setting the kind of industry standards around this stuff right now.
0: Are there reasons to to are there reasons for optimism um I think beyond what we've what we've already discussed?
1: Well, Kevin McCoy talks about the idea that, you know, if if say blockchain doesn't derive its energy from carbon if it were spurring the growth of you know green technologies then that might be a plus but the way things have gone traditionally i don't know if that's going to happen yet you know but seriously it could i mean that you know that could be a sort of positive development
0: so so basically this- oh so so basically though like the like blockchain and like all of that like the idea is is that they would use up so much energy that it would force um the, the like um clean energy is that the is that the idea
1: yeah because energy consumption i used to think the limiting mechanism on blockchain was computing power that you had to have certain levels of computing power to be able to mine the coin but now i'm realizing one of the limiting capacities is the ability to produce enough energy to balance the ledger basically
0: that would if if that failed that would ruin i guess the idea of distributed trust the so the ledger would no longer work so, so it's I guess a little there's... frightening yeah
1: it's a little frightening to think your money is tied if it gets so tied to burning carbon that that would be very frightening the lengths people would go to make sure that their Bitcoin retains its value.
2: It would create a very weird kind of bank run, you know, where you'd want to get your money out but you couldn't until it cleared or. Oh, interesting.
0: Marina, did I cut you off?
3: (laughs) (laughs) I I was just gonna comment that you're gonna have to convince people that, uh, who are always saying that alternative energy is not, reliable that that energy is reliable if you want to make a big switch like that you're going to have a whole new sea of propaganda to deal with (laughs) um one of the
2: things i was thinking about as listening to your other podcasts um patty and bill and i was listening to the one with nail and blake and they were saying um you know museums are always like how do we get people to come here and what museum should really be asking is what do people need and I'm just like thinking about how to ask that question. What do people need with regard to the um, blockchain space and the NFT space? And when I say people, I probably mean artists. And like, like to me, that centers the conversation around investment trusts, risk sharing, pooling proceeds, assigning equity shares. Um, I mean, I really need a you know multi-million dollar. Um, piece of rainbow digital art, but not everyone does. And I don't want to project that onto other people. No, I'm just, I, I don't. Um, but I, but I, I feel like <laughs> the question for me is like, is, is there a way it can be a helpful structure? And then if it's a helpful structure that's essentially owned in trust by a bunch of artists, does that also constitute a form of power toward, for example, using greener energy uh, to support it?
1: Yeah, I mean, I, I as an, speaking as an artist, I hope so. And I think there's a huge learning curve, you know, to learning one about contracts, you know, and using contracts. It's something, when I was a very young artist, uh, a dealer friend who ran a gallery said, never sign a piece of paper. You know, this is a handshake trust industry. And that can be incredibly disempowering, you know. And so, one of the things that's been fascinating to watch is people learning about resale royalties, <laughs> talking about resale royalties, talking about different ways that the value that is created by the sale of art could be distributed to not only the artists, but gallery employees and um, workers and the broader ecosystem. So those, those are things that people need to put their like market cap on to do, but is it, this is also happening in I would say the background for some of this is just that idea that culture wants to be free and kind of pour around these barriers, pour around marketing. You know, somebody was like, here is the GIF of the Nyan cat who is harmed by this. Somebody paid whatever amount of money for it, but here it is, you can have this. It's still public art, you know, and it's somebody now has the bragging rights to say they own a slightly restored, fixed, uh, there was a, a bad pixel or something in the original, which. I find a little bit interesting, you know, almost to talk about in another thing, what is an original, (laughs) and what's a copy. Um, But I, you know, I hear you, Amy. I think those those things that are, there is a lot of potential, but the arts community, one of the biggest barriers is just getting artists to, to organize, you know, and to see themselves as part of a kind of collective and have these conversations and be willing to set these standards when so much of the value still is around individual authors, you know, like we all know who Beeple is now, right? But we know less about the underlying technology and all of these kind of structures that could benefit a lot of artists. Um, And, you know, and that works, you know, with these questions of authorship and knowing that there is a history to this work that people have been making digital art for a long time, who were not able to be paid, who didn't benefit from the kind of bonanza that we're seeing. and, and that there's <laughs> maybe some differences between what is being presented as sort of art or claimed as art right now versus what we maybe value or think about. But, you know, I, I know, Amy, you said you're not interested in the price that is set, but in a consumer society, price is a very simple term for a lot of people to understand value if they don't know who Salawit is, you know, and that he's you know, uh, dematerialized the artwork to a set of instructions and figured out a system to basically rent, you know, yeah. rent it to people, um, or that, you know, somebody else pointed out that we sign contracts every day, every time we click these agreements with Amazon, and, you know, people get freaked out, and they realize, oh, I don't own the music, I just own a, you know, I'm renting it, basically, I don't know exactly <laughs> where to go with all of that, but I, I do think that this sort of, there is a a question where the, the value of the artwork is tied to the price. And that's a dangerous thing to conflate, you know. Um, but it's an easy one to understand.
2: Yeah. And and I think you're right to hold me to account a little bit on being like, oh, I don't know about the price. And I, I just happen to be really comically bad at pricing art for someone who teaches art markets. I remember being at um, TAFAF with my students in Maastricht several years ago and, I, and there was a truly beautiful Claude Durand painting I mean I would have like put it under my arm and legged it and I was like oh what does this cost like 10 million dollars and someone like "He's a private dealer was just is like no 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 1.5 I was like I just I it's I mean both of those are not sums of money I personally could even begin to entertain paying for a work of art so it's a little bit abstract um and I you and think? I think And and I just to say really quickly before uh, the people like it does matter that it's several million dollars because it starts to replicate a um, like a Medici style patronage system where you're supposed to be really glad that somebody bought it so that everyone else can enjoy. I mean, it's really terrible about the broken pixel. I've been really upset about that because I definitely noticed. But um, but no, but in seriousness, I think it's a little bit like that um, Wu-Tang album that Paddle 8 sold a while ago.
1: Um, Martin schreck yeah. worst one of the worst human beings that the universe has coughed up in the last
2: it's really, know, 20 years. It's, <laughs> yeah, credit where credit's due, totally. Um, Patty, what were you going to say?
0: Well, I just wanted to interrupt a little bit to, in defense of your not knowing the uh, pricing of that particular artwork. Like that is something that like um, on workshop, we actually, we have somebody that teaches pricing and like the whole thing about knowing that like knowing what to do is like, you kind of have to like live in that world and constantly be thinking, like be aware of how everybody else prices everything, be aware of the provenance. Like it kind of takes a cert and like every market is, is different. So if, which is why we have like auction specialists that like exist in one, one field or another, like it's not something you can just like sort of jump into. Um, And of course, you know this, but I just wanted to explain that to the audience too, that that's, um, that, that pricing is, is difficult and doesn't, it just doesn't.
1: I think a great thing for listeners, um, to be aware of is that Greg Allen, you know, a a well-known Twitterer, um, had a project where he he created facsimile objects which he realized he could get to fo as a faux object so his acronym to counter the nifty is the fo and um that made me realize that uh amy the the storage art project i want to rebrand is a stow you're stowing um so the sto <laughs> we need to talk about this because i'd love to be able to get like a, a minted version of that contract on the blockchain so we can just go fully into that. Um, but Greg, Greg's project was based on the fact that there was a, a, an undiscovered Manet painting of a dog. And it's called Minet. And it just <laughs> sold at auction yesterday. And it, that with the buyer's premium and all of that, it hammered at like $630,000. So it just nipped Nyan cat in value. So as a comparison, <laughs> you have Manet's <laughs> recently discovered dog dating <laughs> is slightly greater than the much beloved Nyan cat you I, know I
2: just want to say also it has a sense of humor I just want to note that
1: mm-hmm.
2: or or it has no sense of humor but you're t- telling the story of it does
1: well Greg has a sense of humor about it and um you know I the way we think about the value of art and you know, like the storage art project that we've sort of worked on, one of the problems facing artists is it's not scarcity, it's abundance. It's too much of something that you can't give away or sell. And storage art was like, how do I get this work out into the world? And for digital artists, there was no problem with scarcity. Um, There's complete abundance of the image that could go around. Um, And so, you know, it's just really interesting um, the problems in which our production creates for us as artists and how we kind of work around those things or find other ways of dealing with this.
2: Yeah, no, that's really, really interesting. I had something else really important to say and I might remember it in a minute.
0: Well, this seems like a good um, moment actually to wrap up. Um, I feel like we've covered quite a bit of ground Um, and uh, I, uh, I would like to thank um, both you, Amy and Marina for coming on and, um, talking about, um, Nifty's NFTs and, um, all of the various related issues, because I feel like it's kind of complicated and we started to really un- unravel some of that, that material.
1: And, and I want to make it clear, um, if there's any links to the Vine project, anything that you want us to post along with this episode for our listeners to go check out, um, I think that would also be awesome to have, you know, as part of this um, experience of watching the podcast and then being able to go check out all of these things that sort of happened in the past and happened yesterday.
3: Sorry, uh, the Vines, they, uh, they're gone. <laughs> mine is gone (laughs) you
1: mentioned some of them have popped back up on some of the nifty markets is that happening
3: oh really oh no actually i've said some of the artists who were involved have pivoted Ah, to
0: okay
3: but interesting um i I mean the the copies still exist it's just they are no longer uh do it Ah. for the broken broken image but thank you it's been such a pleasure to talk to you guys and to listen mostly it's been really interesting thank you Amy as well yeah and thank
1: you
2: both and same um so interesting and I really appreciate your in- invitation I was going to say that I've been a little bit obsessed recently with this literature in sociology around valuation studies and commensuration like how people talk about um the likening of something to money or the comparison of two different things and how you value them. And um, it has this kind of strange and wonderful language, like, oh, that's a calculative device. And that could be like a person or a prize or a market. Um, And I'm happy to share some of those links too if anybody else wants to read it. It It's starting to help me have a little bit more spaciousness. Like I feel like when you're trying to liken value in art to value in markets, you often end up with those kind of like uh, Marie Trojska kind of nesting dolls where you just like flatten the the outer into the inner. And I feel like I'm trying to discover a little bit more spaciousness. Um, just because this stuff is it's hard and important and I really appreciate the work that you all are doing
0: and the organizing especially
1: all right well I think that wraps up this episode of explain me
0: yes thanks to everyone and we will see you all soon